0: Today's Bible reading comes from Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door, sorry, door standing, open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me, speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven, someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the encircled throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head, heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In the front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These were the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as, clear as crystal. In the centre around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures
1: Hello everyone, it's good to see you all. Just to let you know, my audio is having troubles here, like it's breaking up when I'm listening to you guys, but hopefully my microphone is still working okay. If there are any issues, just let me know because I can quickly change devices if I need to. Okay, thanks for that. Well, according to a poll done three years ago, only 40% of Australians believe that heaven and hell exist. Surprisingly, according to that poll, the number of people aged 18 to 34 who believe in heaven and hell was found to be 1.75 times the rate of those aged over 55. But even then, only around half of that younger age group were found to believe in the existence of heaven. And overall, I think that's a sad statistic really, because from a biblical point of view, There's nothing more amazing than being physically in close proximity to God. And this is something that our passage in Revelation 4 seeks to describe for us. In this vision given to the Apostle John, we get to see something of the architecture of heaven, some of the inhabitants of heaven, and the activity of these inhabitants. Now, before we get into this, we should note that a lot of the imagery and ideas that occur in the book of Revelation can be found with parallels in the Old Testament prophetic books, particularly Ezekiel and Daniel, and there are also lots of parallels with the Psalms. So as we go through today, we'll also be making some reference back to key Old Testament passages as well. So after the vision concerning the seven churches, we see John here in chapter 4 observing a door in heaven, which was open. And then John is invited by the person whose voice was as loud as a trumpet to come up to heaven in order to learn about the future. And this voice we know from chapter 1 was the voice of Jesus. So Jesus is inviting John to go up to get a glimpse of heaven and learn about God's plans for this final stage of human history. So what does John see once he arrives spiritually in heaven? First of all, let's focus on the architecture of heaven. What is heaven like? None of us have been there before, so this is a wonderful opportunity to get to know what it's like. The first thing that John sees is the throne in the centre of heaven and around that throne John sees 24 other thrones arranged in a circular formation emanating from the throne in the center John observes bolts of lightning the noise of rumbling and claps of thunder if you've ever had a fierce storm go over the top of you then you can probably imagine something of the awesome power coming forth from this throne. Now in front of it, John also sees seven torches of fire that were burning, and we're told that these torches symbolise the seven spirits of God. Now, I take this to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. The number seven is often symbolic for completeness and perfection. And the idea of the seven torches is probably hinting at the illuminating and observatory function of the spirit who is sent forth by God to keep his eyes on what happens throughout the universe. This is a little hint that there's nothing that escapes the attention of the Holy Spirit of God. And in front of the throne, we also see that there was something like a sea of glass, something that looked like crystal. This image of a crystal sea is something that has appeared previously in biblical accounts of heaven. In Exodus 24, after Israel entered into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, 74 of them were invited up the mountain to meet and eat with God. And when they saw him, we're told that it looked like there was a pavement of clear sapphire under God's feet. Also from Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22, under God's throne, we see a shiny expanse of awesome crystal. So this sea of glass here in Revelation 4 is basically to be understood as being the floor of heaven. Imagine an expanse as wide as the sky, of awesome bluish crystal. And that will give you a bit of an idea as to how amazing the architecture of heaven is. But what about the inhabitants of heaven? This is where it gets interesting. The first inhabitant of heaven that John notices was the person who was sitting on the throne in the centre. This person is described in verse 3 as having an appearance like jasper and carnelian now jasper is a gemstone that's usually red in color carnelian it's another gemstone and it's usually orange or red so on the throne we have a person who is orangey red in color this is consistent with ezekiel's vision of god back in ezekiel chapter one where god is described as having the appearance of gleaming metal surrounded by fire orangey red It's a glorious picture designed to capture something of the glory of God. In fact, just like the sun, whose light can create rainbows, John saw, encircling God seated on the throne, a magnificent rainbow that looked like it was made out of emerald. Now, emerald's another type of gemstone, and it's usually green in colour. So the picture we're getting here is that heaven... Is a beautiful place with spectacular colours and architecture, and it's full of glory, the glory emanating from God Himself. So we can see that God is the focus of heaven, but He's not the only one there. There are also other inhabitants of heaven as well. In verse 4, we can see this. We're told that there are 24 elders. So we get an elder sitting on each of the 24 thrones around the throne of God. These elders, like God, they're sitting on thrones and we're also told that they were wearing white robes and had golden crowns upon their heads. Now, this is a picture of purity and majesty. In some way, these elders seem to be sharing in the majesty Of God himself but who are they and why are there 24 of them well I think the number 24 here is significant Uh, anyone got any thoughts about this 24 it's a multiple of what number do you think 12 12 John's good at maths there yes 24 it's double 12 is that right John Yeah, And 12, in biblical symbolism, it typically represents the political integrity of a nation. For example, Israel had 12 tribes and 12 tribal leaders. So when you've got the full complement of 12, that's a picture of God's people politically as they should be. They're all there and they're functioning. Now, putting all of this together... I think the number 24, it seems to signify Israel, old and new, because we've got two lots of 12. In other words, we have here a picture of the leaders of the people of God in both the old covenant age and the new covenant age. So we can think of the 24 elders, they're a bit like the princes, the leaders of the people of God viewed as a whole, the people of God viewed throughout history. But in terms of inhabitants, we've still got more people populating heaven. What are we missing out here? Who also do we see present in heaven? Anyone remember from the reading? What can you see in verses 6 to 8? We've got a strange description, you could say, of four creatures. These creatures, they're described as being beside and around the throne of God and they're full of eyes both at their front and at their back with all of those eyes I think we're meant to get the impression that they're good at watching you know they can see everything basically and from John's perspective it looks like each of the creatures has a different facial appearance the first creature, we're told, looks like a lion. The second, like a bull. The third, like a man. And the fourth, like a flying eagle. And we're also told that each of them had six wings. Now, what's the significance of this description and these animals? A bull, a lion, a human, and an eagle. Well, we should know this. The lion is the king of the jungle, right? Yeah, the lion is the scariest, basically, of the wild animals. What about the bull? The bull, well, it's the strongest of the domesticated or tame animals. Humans are the pinnacle of creation, the most intelligent, at least we like to think that. And the eagle is the strongest hunter among the bird species. So these four creatures around the throne, they come across as being very dominant, somewhat scary, and super observant. In fact, does anyone know what the four creatures are and how we're meant to understand them? Any ideas here? Who are
0: these
1: four creatures? Well, the description here in Revelation 4 is basically identical with the four creatures recorded in Ezekiel's vision of God back in Ezekiel chapter 1. And back there, Ezekiel saw four creatures, just like what we have here in Revelation chapter 4. But the thing is, according to Ezekiel's description, each creature had four faces, not just one. Each creature had four faces, the faces of a lion, A bull, a man, and an eagle. See some similarities here? Hopefully, you can see what's happening. John, he's looking on from one side, and he can only see one face on each of the creatures. But in reality, if we go back to Ezekiel, we know that each creature actually has four faces. What we have is the human face looking straight ahead, the lion face on the right, the bull face on the left, and the eagle watching on from behind. This gives these creatures 360 degree vision, not to mention they've got multiples and multiples of eyes, front and back, and also rapid movement in any direction using their six wings. Now, being built like that, I reckon it's something like meeting Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator, but worse than that, to the power of four and then four again, because each one of these creatures, well, we've got, you know, they've got four faces, but then there's four of them. So take Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator, times it by power of 16 or whatever, scary stuff. Anyway, these creatures, they're also identified back in Ezekiel's vision as being cherubim. And the job of a cherubim is basically twofold. First, they have the job of bearing God's throne, if God's throne ever needs to move around. And second, they're like the guards who surround God's throne. Basically, to get to God, you have to get past the cherubim first. And there's no chance of that without God's permission. It's a little bit like what we see when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden of Eden. What do we see there? We see the cherubim blocking the way for Adam and Eve to go back. So the cherubim, they're like the guardians of God's holy space. So we've looked at the inhabitants of heaven, but what about the activity of these inhabitants? In fact, this is the main point of our passage What do we see the cherubim and the 24 elders doing? In verse 8, we see the cherubim, these big, ugly, scary dudes of heaven. We see them day and night, it says, without ceasing, worshipping and praising God. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come these beefy bodyguards, these guardians of God's holy space can't help but sing praises to their holy, almighty and eternal king. And in doing that, we also see a third function for them, that of leading the worship of God in heaven. As verse 9 indicates, whenever the cherubim give glory and honour and thanks to the one sitting on the throne who lives forever and ever, we also get the... 24 elders, the representatives of God's people, throwing themselves onto the ground and casting their crowns before God and worshipping him, the one who is enthroned and eternal. And notice the content of their worship in verse 11. The 24 elders, they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Because you have created all things, and by your will they came into existence and were created. Just like the cherubim who acknowledge God's holy, almighty, and eternal nature, here we see the 24 elders humbling themselves before God, acknowledging God's worthiness because of his authority as the creator of all things. God is holy. God is powerful. God is eternal. God is glorious. And he's also the creator of all things. Now, friends, if God's bodyguards and the elders representing us in heaven are currently worshipping God day and night without ceasing in heaven, what do you think is the appropriate response for us who have heaven as our ultimate destination? Is it not worship? Is it not to bow down and to acknowledge the worthiness of God to receive all praise? Now, our English word "worship" is very instructive at this point. Historically, the word "worship" has come from "worthship." Just like the 24 elders, worshipping God involves acknowledging God's worth. Worthy are you to receive glory and honour and power. Friends, the wonders of heaven lead us to worship because God, our holy, eternal, almighty creator, King, is worthy of such praise as heaven itself proclaims god is worthy of our worship so the implications for us are just like the cherubim day and night unceasingly worshiping god we need to have a daily mindset of worship we need every day to acknowledge in our hearts in our prayers and praise that god is worthy worthy of our worship let's pray heavenly father we thank you that today looking at this very interesting passage from revelation 4 you have shown us something of the architecture and the design of heaven you have also shown us how you're at the center of all things But surrounding your throne, we have the cherubim and the 24 elders. And we can see that what they are engaged in more than anything else is actually worshipping you. Lord God, if that is what is currently happening right now in heaven, and if that's what's happening day and night, well, we can see the implications for us here on earth, in particular for those of us who have heaven as our ultimate destination. Lord God, if worship is happening in heaven, we, know we need to have the same mindset here on earth. So, Lord God, we would pray for each one of us that you would help us in the midst of the daily schedule that we have and the busyness of our lives, the ups and downs, that you would help us to have this heavenly mindset, to keep in mind what's happening right now in heaven, and for us to have a similar kind of mindset, to acknowledge. Your worthiness. You are the holy, eternal, almighty Creator God. Lord, you are worthy of our worship. So we pray that you would help us to be those who acknowledge your worthiness. In Jesus' name, Amen.
2: All right, it is now time for Q and A, and um, I hope Reverend Steven, you're ready for this. uh... Uh, there's a couple. Uh, there's one questions um, uh, up on Padlet, and the question is: What does it mean to receive power? Is it like they are giving God their power?
1: Okay, it's just a kind of expression, right? We're not meant to take it literally. It's not as if we're plugging God into a PowerPoint, you know, and empowering her somehow. Um, it's it's really just acknowledging, right? So. Um, in saying that God is worthy to receive glory and honour and power, what we're really saying through that is that God is worthy to be acknowledged as glorious, as full of honour, full of power. So you need to understand it in that way. It's just how it's said, you know, a kind of expression at that point. But um, we're acknowledging how those attributes, those descriptions, they belong to God. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, okay.
1: (laughs) we could perhaps change the wording at that point to make it a little bit more understandable, but that's the traditional way of putting it. It's really because it's just reflecting how it was put in, say, like Hebrew or in Greek, which the Bible's been translated from. So um, we could update the language at that point. makes it a bit easier to understand. Okay. Yeah, we're acknowledging that those things rightly belong to God because they are aspects of His character. Yeah.
2: Okay, no worries. Thanks for that. Um, second question uh, Do you think that's what heaven actually looked like?
1: Sorry, what was that one? You, I lost you. Do, do you
2: think that's what heaven actually looked like?
1: Oh, what heaven actually looks like. I think so. I think we're getting a fairly good description here. Like, I think there are creatures such as cherubim. Um, there probably will be princes of God's people, you know, those who are in positions of kind of leadership. Jesus does talk about people seated see that right and that it is left. So that suggests that there are still leadership structures within the new world that God is going to create. Um And it's going to be something amazing, something beautiful. I think if we try and think about what's the most beautiful (coughs) natural view that we've seen here on earth times it by a thousand and you're not even getting close to the beauty of heaven itself. Now, in terms of the seven torches representing the Holy Spirit there, you know, that's probably an element of symbolism that literally when we're there... Perhaps we don't see the seven torches. But I think most of the other things in terms of how heaven is described, pretty much it's like with this bright, glorious being at the centre of everything, God himself, then I think that's pretty consistent throughout the Bible. And so, therefore, when we're there, there will be this glorious glow in fact, Revelation talks about how in the end we won't have need for a sun or a moon or anything like that because the glory of Christ himself here among us will be just so bright that he'll illuminate everything. So that's going to be interesting to see. So I imagine this is getting pretty close to what our experience will be like. So it's something <clears throat> awesome to look forward to.
2: Okay. Thank you for that. Um... The next question is, what does this picture mean, the orange one? I'm um, not particularly sure exactly which one the orange
3: one. I think it might be the slides, is that right? Um,
2: yeah, the, one of the slides, but, but uh, slides. <laughs> not uh that's, sure what the orange one is.
3: <laughs> uh, okay, that's probably for me to answer. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's the slide that's up now. It's like an orange thing with like a... Stuff. So, I'll just check um, out what this slide is. <laughs> so um the answer to that is um
1: well uh so Toto what, what I was wondering with this one, John, was what's the little design at the bottom there?
3: Yeah, yeah. There's some so, questions about that, I know in my family. <laughs> so <laughs> um so Toto's been doing uh, our revelation series design has been doing a great job. Um so he's had a picture for every, well, he's had a series of pictures. I've kind of picked a few for different sermons, Um, but they're based off uh, the images that were, they're based off images that were painted for the explosion, uh, when the explosion, when Krakatoa exploded. Um, So they're kind of, um, yeah, they're, they're images of like great, a great world changing event. So that's kind of the background of it. Uh, this particular one, um, I picked that one for the third sermon series because to me it kind of looks like um, people setting off on a journey into kind of a, a tough situation, like that kind of redness. Um, so it's, it's kind of like a picture of um, us being brothers and companions, brothers and sisters and companions in the suffering, the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So that's kind of from Revelation 1. Um, so that's why I picked that one for this kind of early part of our sermon series. So <laughs> it wasn't explained, but it's a, it's just a conceptual picture. And um, Toto's going to move through uh, more and more uh, pictures as we go through the series, and there'll kind of be a, a nice poster at the end to remind us of our journey. Okay. Thanks. Just a question go. about that
1: first one there. Mm. Like the first one, there was three just there yep it looks a bit like some kind of it looks very similar to what we were talking about today from revelation four is that right or is it an explosion there as well
3: well yeah i kind of took that as like the it was like the that was from that was like uh the very first series where it was kind of like the picture mm. of uh god as the almighty so i just kind of took that as like the uh, big general theme and there's kind of three shades and it's very trinitarian in the first sermon, it talks about mm. the spirit, the son and the father. So I kind of like that three shades and just like an amazing picture. Thing. Um,
1: it's very similar to today as well, because you've got the orangey red, which is like what God looked like, the colour. And then we've got this rainbow around God, which Revelation 4 describes as being kind of greenish as well. So mm. it's a good match there.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for that um, explanation. Okay, uh, the next question is, is there a link with the cherubim over the mercy seat and ark in the Old Testament, and uh, described in uh, Revelation?
1: Yes, definitely. Definitely there is a link because uh, the design of the temple back in the Old Testament age, that design actually comes from what Moses saw on top of mount sinai so it's like when god met with the people of israel at sinai we get god coming down from heaven and wherever god goes in a sense god takes heaven with him because god is the center of heaven right so we get heaven coming down and temporarily resting upon the top of mount sinai moses is invited up there to see what it's like and all of the design of the tabernacle which then became the temple is meant to be a picture of heaven so there's definitely a connection there and so the cherubim are actually viewed as with their wings outstretched they are in a sense upholding or holding up god's throne so the cherubim whenever you get to the cherubim you know god is close because they are actually around his throne
2: okay no worries um Okay, this one, uh, next one is uh, it's a Bible passage. Um, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Revelation hmm. 4 verse 2. Now the question is, what does this mean? No, sorry, does this mean he was having a vision, or did his Spirit literally go up into heaven to see heaven?
1: Like, I'm assuming John, in terms of his physical body, he's in jail, right? So he's probably still in in Patmos, where he was. Uh, But spiritually, so his spirit ascends into heaven, you could say, in the sense that I think really what that means is he's just given an insight into heaven. And so, in a sense, God enables John to see. So it's a vision, I would say, basically, in the end. It's a vision. And a similar language also occurs in Ezekiel, by the way, because Ezekiel is uh, in exile. He's a long way away from uh, Jerusalem, but in the spirit, he's able to see what's happening in Jerusalem. So in other words, he's given this vision by God. And so that's why I said, you know, spiritually. Spiritually, he's present in heaven. Physically, he's still here on earth, but it's like the eyes of his mind, somehow they're given this opening or insight into the realities of heaven. Hopefully that explains that question. Sure. John, have you got any thoughts on that one?
3: Uh, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think it's kind of his spirit, maybe in the like, pa- empowered by the spirit kind of sees these things. Um, I think within Revelation, it's also a bit of a, lit- a literary marker. So I think that same phrase comes up yeah, maybe yeah. two or three more times when there's like big transitions uh, in what he's seeing. So uh, once I was mm. in the spirit, he sees this stuff. And then he'll say that again. And it's like kind of a really different picture. So it kind of lets us know that he's moving around a bit as well. Mm.
2: Okay. Thanks for that. Uh, We've well, we got quite a few comments today. Uh, so that's good. <laughs> okay. The next one is, do you think there will be any mention or consideration of hell or Satan in heaven?
1: That's interesting, that one. Uh, Like I view that the justice of God is something good. The justice of God is something that God's people will praise God for. So I'm assuming, given that hell is a function of God's justice, that there will be some knowledge of the reality of hell now, what that means, I don't know if that means that, you know, every so often you might be able to go to this certain location on earth and then if you look off in the distance, you can see hell. <laughs> Probably not, but there will be knowledge that hell is a reality for some people. And so it would be, in a sense, you could say somewhat sobering to know that, but also that will bring to mind for God's people the reality of the fact that God is a God of justice as well as a God of love. So, yeah, I think um, there will be knowledge of that. I would probably even think that there will still be knowledge then of our earthly lives as well and what happened during our earthly lives and perhaps even some of the things we've forgotten or some of the things we weren't even aware of that, yeah, we'll probably have greater insight then Even into the past as well, about now, and a knowledge of our own sinfulness and things like that, but knowing God's grace and forgiveness, all of that will be part of the mix. And so, therefore, I'm assuming, on a similar way, you know, the reality of hell as well, that's part of that. Um, But we should say that for God's people, we will be totally free and totally. Feeling a sense of uh, blessing and in being in close proximity to God. So even though we can sort of know these things or remember sad things and stuff like that, I think all of that will not be able to take away from the wonders of actually being in the presence of God and experiencing the fullness of his blessing.
2: Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, there's two more Uh the second last one is more of an um, um, observation, a very creative picture, very nice. <laughs> I think that's for the, the, the slides. Um, so, okay, it okay. yeah. was a
3: great idea from Toto.
2: Yeah, good job Toto. Okay, and our last question, I presume. Um, where were John's letters from prison discovered to form the Revelation?
1: Can you say that one again? So where was...
2: Where were John's letter from prison discovered to form the Revelation?
1: The Book oh, of revelation? in terms of how... Well, in some ways, I don't think we really know. There are some... We do know that Revelation was was fairly early in terms of, if you look back in the history of, okay, do we have texts of that part of the Bible or not? Then Revelation is actually fairly early on in terms of the evidence that we do have for it. But... There was a long period of time in the early church where there was a little bit of a debate about the book of Revelation. Um, is there to be accepted or not as part of the Bible? So I don't think we can say, we, we, we definitely, from what I know at least, we, we don't have evidence of, say, letters to those seven churches. But what we do is we have the book as a whole or a little, uh, at times what you can have is if you've got little like uh, remnants of the book that are left over. You know, if you've got a really early uh, manuscript, parts of it have fallen off or whatever. Now, in terms of John, there is evidence fairly early on. So we're talking about like second century AD of people making mention of this book. So that's quite early. Um, but we we really can't go into, okay, the little individual pieces here. And it may very well be, I think, that that the letters to the seven churches. We do know that John, historically, it seems like he was based in Ephesus eventually. So Ephesus is around that area. So he probably did have some oversight over those seven churches. Okay but whether he wrote individual letters to those churches, I'm assuming perhaps not. It's probably just more stylistic at that point, but those seven letters are part of the, you know, the series of sevens that we see in this book here. And so the book was written as a whole and it's been passed down as a whole.
2: Okay. I think that was our final question. So, um, oh no, there's one more. Uh, Oh. Thank you, Robin, Simon, for the slides on the sermon. Great visual aids. So.
1: That's all right. My pleasure. Thanks for having me <laughs> from so long away. <laughs>